Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Mark Simos, fiddler and professor at Berklee College of Music. I visited him in his home back in February when I took my Boston trip. I didn't know Mark at all prior to our session, but both Mark Kiliansky and Adam Hurt recommended him, so my expectations were high, and I wasn't disappointed. Mark's a fantastic fiddler, and he has a lot of ideas about what music is and why it's important, traditional music especially. So, basically, the perfect get-up-in-the-cool-guest. It was nice to not feel like I was being self-indulgent when I wanted to wax philosophical about fiddle tunes. Uh, He was right there with me. But don't get the wrong idea, this is by no means an overly talky episode. Mark curated a great jam of great versions of great tunes with an emphasis on effective, intentional simplicity. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Stick around after the jam and I'll tell you where to hear more of Mark's music and possibly study with him. Then, for those of you who are interested, I'll tell you how to support Get Up In The Cool and feel super good about yourself and also get exclusive bonus content. But first, here's my interview and jam with Mark Simos. Enjoy. January nightcap on. Uh, Mark Simus, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Yeah, well, welcome to my living room. Yes. <laughs> now that we've thoroughly welcomed each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, this uh, is a great thing you're doing, kind of uh, roving around and kind of just recording musical conversations with people. I'm yeah. glad to be included. Yeah. Uh, thanks for including uh, the rest of however many subscribers I have <laughs> to to our to our little jam. Uh, also, thanks to uh, Chris Downadar for those very dark <laughs> lyrics to this song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's how you can tell you're playing old-time music is uh, happy music and, yeah. and, and lyrics about death. You know, so. there, there's, so many, uh, there's so many tunes that seem like they just... Uh, the title fits so perfectly into the melody. You, you would, it's like, this had to be sung originally yeah. with it. Yeah, I think a lot of these... Um, these tunes, I think this, the division between instrumental music and songs was a lot more fluid yes. in, in, in uh, traditional music of all sorts, but certainly in old-time music. 
And Yo. it's interesting because I, uh, you know, I, I write songs and I write tunes, but for a long time they were kind of separate in my mind, and I have been trying to bring them closer together. Um, and I think one part of that is really trying to hear phrases in the tunes that are like, like hear it speaking, yes. you know. Yeah, some things you would, some fiddle melodies you would never, you would never try to <laughs> try to sing because they're so fiddleistic. But uh, yeah. Ryland, Ryland Burhan's got me hip to that because like there's some, yeah, some moments in those tunes like Bound to Have a Little Fun. He mm-hmm. likes to sing Bound to Have a Little Fun. Yeah, <laughs> like every time. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that is what it, it does sound exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of relates to another thing that I've been uh thinking about a lot I, I don't get a lot of chance to play to old time music these days because I teach full time at here at Berkeley yeah that's Berkeley with two E's yes. in Boston <laughs> uh, apparently by the way someone just told me that uh, Berkeley the other Berkeley uh, has just had a little bit of trouble as you know kind of in the news and that uh, and that um, Twitter trollers mistook Berkeley College of Music in Boston <laughs> oh, <no>. for <laughs> University of Berkeley <laughs> And it's kind of like, um, you know, so we sort of got a little fallout from that. And oh, the no. irony of that is that I originally grew up in California uh-huh. and have a lot of friends in the Bay Area. So when I was lucky enough to get hired at Berkeley yeah. College of Music in Boston, I got, for a while, people go, oh, I didn't know you were moving back to the Bay Area. Yeah, sorry. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, I don't, I don't get a lot of chance to just go out. and I haven't been able to get to a lot of the festivals in the last few years teaching full time. But uh, maybe because of that, I've been thinking a lot about simplicity in tunes and yes. really starting to appreciate that. And this, this tune's a good example, <clears throat> Old Aunt Jenny with a Nightcap on, because when I decided to teach it to the old-time ensemble at Berkeley, I decided it would be really good to listen to the original source. And one original source for that tune is a guy named Estill Bingham, E-S-T-I-L-L. And um, he came from Pineville, Kentucky, and there's a, <clears throat> some really nice archival recordings, and he's one of those players, when you listen to him, his, his fiddling sounds very simple, and there's things he would do that I just would never think to do, like... Yeah. Like, really? Play two, the same note twice? Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. One right <laughs> after the other? That's so boring. <laughs> and it's kind of like I realized that I had spent many years, maybe because I came from... Uh, background playing Irish music, which tends to be melodically very intricate. And uh, I sort of had these habits of always trying to make melodies more noty yes. and more complex. And it took me a long time to realize how incredibly elegant and kind of archetypally beautiful these simpler contours could be. Yeah, And you have to sort of remind yourself that you can do that. So there's a real beauty to going back to those source recordings and kind of like zeroing in on not... Not only not missing what they did, but not covering over what they didn't do with a bunch of your own ideas too quickly. Yeah, you know? so. there's a there's a lot of gems in there that like get sort of paved over. For instance, I this is embarrassing. What, what's the tune that goes? Uh, you know, it's familiar, but I'm not remembering. Yeah. Uh, I I wish I, I'm like I said before I got banjo brand I can't remember titles right now but um that that tune whatever it's called someone write in <laughs> yeah. but it's uh everyone plays it with the same syncopation throughout the whole thing uh, where it goes um, uh, and they play the A part that way too. Uh, with all those anticipations and it's like funky the whole way but in the original source recording it's funky just once the A <laughs> is is very straight yeah almost awkwardly just just super straight ahead like it, it literally goes like and then in the B part it goes and the juxtaposition of that now that's what makes the tune for me. Right, now it's an answer to a question instead of the same yeah. answer over and over again. It's like yeah. a sarcastic answer to a to a. It's funny question. because uh, <laughs> the other tune I wanted to play of Estel Bingham's uh, is a tune called Old Billy Hell. And something very similar has happened in kind of the way people play the B part to that, where there's a little, there's a little question answer in the B part. And often 
people do it the same way twice, which to me like takes all the magic yeah. out of the tune. So um, this is a tune called Old Billy Hell. And uh, I learned it, I first heard it at Clifftop, actually, from a fiddler I've come to really admire named Rich Hartness, a good buddy of mine. Um, he's actually going to be coming up to a, for a visit here in Boston in March. We're looking forward to seeing him. Um, and Rich is somebody who uh, really knows how to take a simple tune and, and kind of chew on it a while. And every time he plays it, uh, he's not just throwing in variations for the sake of variations, but he's sort of spiraling deeper into like the essence of the tune. It's very Zen kind of thing. Yeah. Right? Uh, anyway, um, and then I went back and listened to Estel's version of it. And it's just, it's just beautiful in the just sort of the simplicity of it. But the B part has a little bit of that. I'll play it a little once you can listen, and then you can join in. Yes, yes. It's a lot like old Aunt Denny, so it's uh, uh, um. People just go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know that be twice, but instead. Yeah. Yes. Now that B is so special because it's yeah. the only time you get to it in the yeah. tune. So I think it's amazing how these little variations can get rubbed off in trans. And, yeah. and sometimes it's remembering to do the simple thing first yeah. and then throw in the little twist. But the twist attracts your attention and then, and yeah. the, then it's, the twist stays in the whole time. Then it's not a twist anymore. So. Oh, man. Yeah, let's play this one a little bit. Yeah. 
tune. Isn't that great? And you're totally right. That saving it, saving it, saving it. Save got, it. Yeah, it's much more precious that way. It is. Yeah, very cool. And you know, I teach songwriting, and uh, I've been struck over and over again. I, I when I teach songwriting, I try not to sound like just a proselytizer for roots music because yes, yes. I teach students that play every conceivable style, and mm -hmm. I love a lot of. You know, contemporary styles that I would never have heard if I wasn't teaching at Berkeley. But it's amazing how many of these lessons apply, even if you're writing pop music. Yes. So you have an idea, and then you think, okay, um, I want to develop that so it's not quite the same thing. And, and you, you almost always go, so how do I make my first idea a little more complicated so that I've got a variation? Yes. Instead of going, what if that first idea shows up as the answer to something simpler? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and actually developing the idea means stripping something away from it yes. so that when you place it, it sounds even cooler than when yeah. you first thought. Like, you sort of have to discover what was cool about that idea, then take that thing away, <laughs> and then do that first, you know? And, uh, and I think that that's been a big lesson for me, yeah. also in writing tunes, is that um, your first idea, your little seed, doesn't always show up at the beginning of the tune. Mm -hmm. You may get placed somewhere else where it sort of does its job the right way, so. Yeah, often when I'm in a, in a band rehearsal and we're arranging a song or arranging a tune, uh, the thing I've come to say, the the way that I communicate this, that I feel is very delicate, if uh, leaders in music groups want to use this in the future, is, wow, this is uh, how the sound sh the song should sound at its at its biggest point. Yes, we found it, and you say that after everyone's playing all out the entire song when you're doing it the first way I like through. That. That's very diplomatic. So yeah, like, they're just like... That is so awesome. I don't think we'd really want to hear that more than once. Yeah. It's just too good. What, <laughs> what a great texture and like an energy to to earn. To earn, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I uh, When I got to Berkeley, I got a chance to hang out with some like amazingly knowledgeable musicians, jazz musicians, classical players, and I... A good friend of mine, Alan Levines, who's a wonderful composer, told me that when he's creating a piece of music for, say, any kind of ensemble, be string quartet or whatever it might be, one of the things he thinks about is, what are all the sounds I have available to me? Yes. And what are all of the subsets of those sounds? Yes. And one of those subsets is everything playing at once. Yes, yes. <laughs> but... Uh, he might then start carving his choices of when to use those textures yeah. so that that heaviest texture is something you use very right. kind of judiciously, you know. So, and I think that's also something that traditional music, to understand how it's put together, that's so much part of the soul of it. It's, mm -hmm. it's music played by people who did not have a lot of resources available yeah. to them. So economy was really like, yes. how do I make the most out of, in some sense... Uh, a kind of, um, I don't want to say paucity of materials. I want to say a parsimony of yes. materials, you know? Uh, and the, how can I dance all night with what we have as a community available to us? Right, without you know? getting exhausted. Without yes. getting exhausted, right. yeah. How do I make this fiddle fill this whole room yeah. since I don't have a whole orchestra behind me, you know? so How do I play this tune for 15 minutes without everyone hating it? Right. <laughs> And right. people figure out how to do it. They do. They do. <laughs> With just, uh, you know, uh, 45 seconds of material. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're talking my language. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I got to get to D to go to our next. Uh, yeah. So let's take a quick tuning break. Let's take a tuning break. What's next on the list? Well, uh, continuing this theme of um, simplicity, uh, actually, there's a it reminds me of this great quote from uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., okay. who was the father or the grandfather of the guy who was the Supreme Court Justice. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. was kind of a doctor and a philosopher. He, he had this big kind of hit. Uh, he was like the original blogger. He okay, had this yeah. thing called the, the Autocrat of the Breakfast Table, mm. which were these little sort of dialogues he published in the newspapers and in kind of New England, and they eventually got collected. And but he was a very much of a, <clears throat> an epigrammist. Yes. And he said something like, 
I wouldn't. I don't give a fig for the complexity on this side of simplicity, but I'd give my right arm for the complexity on the. Oh, I would. I don't give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity. Yeah. But I'd give my right arm for the simplicity on the other yeah, side of complexity, yeah, yeah. which uh, is a very complicated way of saying. No, I, yeah. but, you know, he was sort of like saying simple because yes, I haven't thought about it. Yes. Isn't particularly profound. Right. Complexity because you're showing how clever you are is also not particularly profound. Right. Uh, a topic that I've struggled with for years. Yeah, yeah. But if you kind of can get through all the complexity and get to that other side and then boil that down again, like yeah. that's beautiful. And that yeah. you really have to work at that, you know. And the intention is it smells different. It does. It, yeah, you can yeah. you can tell. <laughs> you can tell when somebody is doing something simple and you go. Uh, he or she could have done a lot of other things yes. and they, they were wise enough not to. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. You know? yeah. So this is a tune, uh, the Kahneman sort of session name for this is Johnny Lover's Gone. And um, in that version, it's sort of... Are you of saying liver or lover? Lover. Okay. Johnny Lover's Gone. Okay, Johnny I had Lover's to Gone is a cannibal tune and that's yeah. like a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah. um, we'll but, do another episode on cannibal other, tunes. Yeah, right. Um, and was, so when I originally learned it, it was actually like a little three-part tune. And then once again, I got interested in the, uh, a source version of it. And um, there is a version that comes from Emmett Lundy, who is this great, kind of very archaic, kind of Virginia fiddler. And when I was with my band, The Cliffhangers, so I have a bunch of friends that I used to play with all the time at Clifftop. We were called The Cliffhangers. And when we decided to make an album... Of traditional tunes, we did a lot of listening, kind of preparing for it, because we weren't a touring band that played together all the time. And this was a tune that we prepared for the record, and I listened to the Emmett Lundy recording and worked on it and worked on it, and we recorded it. And then we listened back, and we were like, you know, we just didn't quite get it. Yeah. We just, and, and in retrospect, it was not that... We, it wasn't that we missed something. We put too much other stuff in it. Yeah. We kind of clouded it. And Emma Lundy's playing has this kind of spacious grandeur in it that is really, again, very elusive. Now, unlike Estel Bingham, he, he had a very clean sound. And I think his, uh, his playing really owes a lot to older kind of Celtic styles, I think. There's a sort of... Uh, there's a kind of marchy elegance yes. to this and yes. a lot of space in it. So after that, I kind of went back and studied up. And, and once again, it was it was having the responsibility of passing the tune to students that made me think, you know, I better not muck this up. Yeah. And we went back <laughs> and, uh, and I feel like I got a little closer to it, you know, after listening to it a few more times. And it's just a, it's a beautiful tune. So... Um, I'll send this out to my cliffhangers buddies as sort of this is the, the outtake that never made it yeah. on. But I think it was a it was at least a mark of our respect that we recognized that we hadn't gotten there. So it's the proudest tune that I've never recorded. <laughs> and the uh, as I had said Kind of the festival name is, or the alternative name is Johnny Lover's Gone, or John Lover's Gone. Um, and uh, on the the Clifftop Notes Volume 1 album that accompanied our traditional album, there's an original tune that I wrote called John Bloom's Gone that is sort of a transformation mm. of this tune, and it was dedicated to a gentleman named John Bloom who sadly passed away at Clifftop one year. Well, at least he passed away after playing music. Did you see he passed away at Clifftop? He did, yes. Oh, my God. It was pretty, it was pretty tragic. So um, That is tragic, yeah. Uh, but Emmett Lenny recorded this as Poor Little Johnny's Gone to the War. So that's the name.
Wow. Isn't that great? That's really, that I mean, is really great. Tune great. I would I do the gross <laughs> version of it, but. Uh, yes to both. Yeah. <laughs> um, man, that's, a, that's such an interesting tune. It's, I see what you mean by simple. Mm hmm. But and it, yet in the cracks, it's because yeah, it's complex in its in its conce in its conception. It's like there's definitely something there, but it's hard to say like what. For for me, learning it, what mm. is this tune? Yes, <laughs> like what makes this tune? You're a wise young man, Cameron. <laughs> I love that. No, I mean, uh, thanks. <laughs> it's it's a way of listening to uh, tunes that, again, I maybe it's because I'm a tune writer, and yeah. so. When I'm playing a traditional tune, I try to listen to it as if I wrote it. Yeah. I, I, you might say I kind of take the same responsibility for it yes. as if I wrote it. And like, why would I choose to put that note there, yeah. you know? Because someone did choose that. Yes. It didn't just sort of drop out of the sky. Mm -hmm. And I think that we forget that this traditional music that we maybe learn by osmosis and by hearing these old versions, but somewhere along the line, yeah. you know, someone approached that as a composer. Yes. And, it, yes. and when it was put together, it wasn't just a trivial thing. There was something yeah. in those seemingly simple choices of notes that was magical and yeah. new, you know? What was that? And a guy that I really respect in the Irish music world, Martin Hayes, I think is uh, one of the beautiful things about his playing. Now, he can play extremely... Uh, flamboyantly and elaborately when he wants to and I had a chance to back him up before his Dennis Kale kind of days and I mean he's an amazing player but he can also take a really simple tune and play it and you can just hear him like cherishing every note and kind of really conveying like listen to this listen to why how that note went yeah. there and then it went there you know yeah. And that kind of reverence for the meaningfulness of every note it's just a uh, it's inspiring when you hear a great musician who could certainly throw more virtuosity in, you know, do it. So that's really, that's why I think it took me so many years to learn to be able to play these simpler tunes. Yeah. And I feel like I can begin to dig into them a little bit, you know. Um, it's interesting. This is a little bit of a stretch, but uh, there's this like Radio Lab episode on a while back about um, sort of the state of uh, debate teams. Um, yeah. And about how I, I didn't know this, but I guess the way that uh, like college debate has developed, uh, it got it's gotten to the point where it's like, if you listen to a debate, it's how many facts can you cite like per minute. Ugh. And that's literally how they're <laughs> how mm. they're being graded um, and and judged, and uh, so the, the episode's all about like these um, uh, these predominantly African American teams that have decided to sort of like troll these these debate competitions by just straight up doing slam poetry. And wow! And be, and, oh, I'd uh, love to know about that episode. <laughs> yeah, you should definitely check it out. I wish I knew what it was called, but it's sort of this idea of like that. You know, there's there's the content, mm -hmm. and then there's the expression of the, the expression content. Of the content, and then uh, sort of this refusal to just to just consume content. But it's 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 the marriage of, of form and substance, and yeah. um, that they're equally important, and that if you have um, one without the other, it's 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 meaningless. You know, like you yeah, have these I, politicians that are great orators and very charismatic, but they but they but they're telling lies. And then you may have these other people who know all the facts, but they don't know how to express. They don't it. know how to express. You know, them. and then it's yeah. like I feel like that's sort of what this music is. It's like a, I'm so happy to hear you say this because, uh, um, well. In, in light of recent events, I've done a lot of thinking about the quality of conversation and the quality of civil discourse. And yeah, at some point, I, you know, and I've been talking to people in the old time music community and the bluegrass community. And when the time is right, I am hoping that we will find some opportunities to bring communities together to practice sort of conversing in a different way yeah. because I feel like uh, part of what we lack, unfortunately, in this, in this country with the div division and the polarization are groups of people that naturally do have a variety of 
political and cultural backgrounds, but also have some reason to respect each other. Yes. And the music community happens to be one of those communities yes. where at least you can find yourself arguing with someone. You go, well, Lucy's a great banjo player. You yes. Know? And yeah. then that person saying that might be saying, yeah, that that you know that young kid up in Boston. Well, Lucy's a good musician, or that yeah. guy down the south. <laughs> So, it's, it's sort of like the same way that you still go home for Thanksgiving, even though you may, it may drive you crazy. You still go home because they're your family. Right. It's like if people can find ways to extend that same attitude towards different areas of their lives. Like, that's right. I'm going to go play tunes with this person that I, whose Maybe politics I despise. We might argue, but we might argue, but we can but play. We're going to harmonize. Yeah. Yeah. Now the only thing about that is that sort of puts music in this uh, somewhat diminished role of being kind of the, the candy that drives us together. But you see, what you're talking about goes way deeper than that. Yes. And it's why I feel that teaching music is kind of, at this point, almost like a sacred mission. And the reason is uh, you're, you're actually talking about a, a rift in the way of how people respond to persuasion that yes. goes back to really Greek times when there was this split in Socrates' time between the philosophers and the sophists, the people who sort of said, well, I have these rhetorical ways of spinning the, the you know, and I can I can spin the argument from either side because I'm such a good, yes. uh, I, I can use these rhetorical figures of speech so persuasively uh, that I can, you know, kind of almost hypnotize you. Yeah. And then... Uh, Socrates, Aristotle, people are saying, but there's this thing called logic. Yes. These patterns that go beyond persuasion that are about truth. Yeah. And I've begun to ask myself, is that really the case? Or even when we're <laughs> supposedly hearing a, a syllogism like if A and B, then A plus yes, B, yes. maybe we're responding to patterns that are almost musical patterns yeah. and going, that, that feels true to me. Yeah. And where do you encounter patterns like that? In fiddle music. Yeah. So fiddle music is full of these little like questions and answers. And you hear them, you go, and you just go like, that's true. Yes. Or, that's, that's, that, yes, that's right. And I remember the first time I heard this is my dear friend, uh, um, uh, Lori Riven Hamstra in Santa Cruz, her young daughter, um, Rachel, was kind of like three years old, and we were sitting at the piano, and I was playing like Old MacDonald. Yeah. And I went, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And she looked at me, and she goes, I don't believe that tune. What? And I was like, <laughs> that is so great. I don't oh believe that tune. And and that was sort of like, it was such a great way to put it, you know, oh, out of the mouth of a very intelligent three-year-old. So I don't believe that I tune. I don't believe that tune. So you see, I feel like what's happening is yeah. we are being so, because of social media, because of technology, the kind of repetition that we are being exposed to is a deadening repetition. Yeah. It's the same exact thing over and over again. And I believe that when your spirit gets assaulted with that, yeah. you stop being able to tell the difference between truth and lies. You stop, you get desensitized. Yeah. But facts aren't, you cannot combat that entirely with facts. Yeah. And crowding how many facts, in, you know, when you yeah. when you rely on facts to combat that, it's like you're saying, the way you say it doesn't matter. Well, songwriters know yeah. that what you say and how you say it are, are intimately and inextricably braided together, and you don't get to ignore one side of that yeah. for the other. It doesn't matter how true your facts are if you're not kind of saying them in a compelling way. But just saying it over and over again and thrumming it into people's minds. So that's why me, I love listening to the 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 Psalms in their original Hebrew. Mm. And I, I almost can't stand them in English. <laughs> because of uh rhetorical patterns like yeah. uh um, I mean, they're spitting bars, you know, like they're just yeah. like they have it's music. The only way you can the only way it's something can last it without a written tradition, you know, or without a well read society is if it's Musically compelling. Right. Well, and so the essence of kind of those rhetorical patterns from uh, poetry from the Bible are things like uh, uh, epistrophe, where you kind of uh, end each line the same way, but you yeah. start it different, yeah. you know, or those kinds of... So fiddle tunes are built out of those. I don't know whether it's 
rhetoric or logic, but I know that it's good for the soul to kind yeah. of feel those patterns and respond to them. And so, and it's all about consent because you have to agree in any one moment. Like two people may have different ideas about what the tune is. Yes. And you, in the moment, you have to like make a compromise, or else you're going to have a bad time. You know about like. Or maybe someone will bring this tune and they're like, to me, this is what this tune is. And this is the part that is sort of the hook of it. And then you have to agree to Ag play the tune together. Agree, but not necessarily be in lockstep. Yes. And, and there can be a counterpoint yeah. of, oh, I'm hearing the pattern this way. You're hearing the pattern that way. And there's a tension there. And yet we're having a conversation. Yeah. I'm not being drowned out by you yes. and sort of being hypnotized and falling into your way of hearing it and losing myself. But neither am I simply preserving my autonomy by sealing myself in a little vacuum bubble and ignoring anything else. Yeah. Like music happens when there's a space in between those two extremes. Well, how about that for a follow-up to uh, Emmett Lundy's uh, Johnny Lover's Conference War? Yeah. Well, I feel uh, like most of these players, if they heard, hear this conversation, they would be like, <laughs> say something like, well, don't know about that. <laughs> Well, that's uh, a lot of talking, not a lot, a lot of tunes. Of talking well, should we play another tune? <laughs> yeah, we probably should. No, I, I, I love it. I love explaining why this music is because I think most people would agree who 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 loves the music. So. <laughs> well, I thought we might just play another tune in D that will probably be familiar to a lot of the people tuning in. Duck River is sort of one of those popular tunes. It came from John Salyer, who, uh, you know, whose music kind of got rediscovered maybe 15 years ago through the work of, uh, uh, you know, Bruce Green, who kind of contacted the family. So this is one of those tunes that I don't think there were a lot of other sources for. Uh, but my, uh, my joke about this tune, I shouldn't have told you beforehand, but... Um, one of the people that really spread this tune around was actually Brittany Haas. Um, and she did a kind of beautiful, more kind of contemporary roots version of it. And a few harmonic options creeped in at that point um, that, that sort of got, I like hearing it kind of stripped back to the original a little bit. So I've joked with Brittany and also with Bruce Molsky, who was kind of one of her mentors. But there's a certain, a certain chord that sometimes always gets thrown in. And it's nice to hear it also without that chord. So. <laughs> but it's not the four. Don't feel you have to stay away from the four.
Well, man. I'm not sure I believed every note of that tune, but uh, we had some fun. Yeah, we certainly did. I did a few things in there I never did before, and I'm not sure I like them, but they were interesting. Uh, uh, well, well, now it's uh, recorded forever. Oh, God. <laughs> Can I take anything back, or is it too late? <laughs> we'll no. fix it in post. Well, <laughs> Yeah, that's the fun thing about uh, you know the podcast medium is you get to take oops you get to take more risks than on maybe a record, but but you, less than in a live show where it's really gone. After yeah, a yeah. Time. yeah, it's kind of a happy medium. You get to keep some really cool risky stuff, but you also get to keep some hmm. some risks that didn't necessarily work, and that's, that's part of the part of the part of the idiom. I yeah, guess, right? yeah. It's part of the idiom. <laughs> it's true when you make a record, it is tempting to. Try to make it a little too perfect. Yeah. And um, well, because you're gonna, you know, make how you know hundreds of copies of it. <laughs> and, you're gonna be floating around. <laughs> hundreds of copies, and then and you know, if it's if it's a good record, you hope people will listen to it more than once. Yes. So that means it should bear up to you know listening. So it's true. It's it's funny the different records I've made. Uh, the the aesthetic. Uh, like the Clifftop Notes records were interesting. We, Bob Carlin was a producer, and he's got amazing ears. Uh, he's really he's worked on so many projects for Rounder and as an independent producer. Um, and he put just a lion's share amount of effort into helping me like work out the chords to the original tunes and yeah. things like that. Um, and we kind of committed ourselves. We recorded it for Tim Brown's Five String Productions in um, Westchester. And so it was a house recording. Um, and we uh, we recorded everything live. Yeah. So there was no overdubbing. However, we did do lots of takes, and we did edit between takes. So in one sense, uh, everything on there is something we actually did play as a band in the moment. But you do have the option when you edit, like, well, yeah. you could take the best second time through. Right, and, right, you right. Know, uh, and it turns out that that's that's been part of the tradition of recorded music for a long time. Yes. We, uh, there was recently a great jazz um, producer passed away, and I apologize that I can't remember his name, but he recorded a lot of great jazz recordings, again, kind of in a uh, a very ramshackle way but you know he was great ears but apparently a lot of those classic recordings were very edited they, yeah, you know, yeah so there was sort of the amazing improvisational play in the moment but they're really the 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 selection and the sequencing and the ordering of that was a separate artistic like mosaicing that happened that is sometimes not really acknowledged. And that right. might have been something that the, the musicians always had a hand in. And in some cases, it was something that was really done by the producer slash editor. Hmm. So, so I've been listening back to a couple of uh, older recordings where I did, the editing was there. And sometimes I kind of go, boy, I, in my day, I was, boy, I listen to that. I, I did just the right thing. <laughs> it's like, oh no, I didn't. Uh, you know, it was it got a little bit of help yeah. from after the, you know, afterthought. So there's a little bit of like history curating going yes, on. Absolutely. <laughs> Alternative facts. Oh, oh yeah. Right. No, not not that. Right. So. Um, well, kind of on that same theme, um, I think it might be nice to go into A. Yeah. And. Um, and actually, this next tune, Shaking Down the Acorns, um, it's interesting because a lot of great um, contemporary players, again, people like my friend Bruce Molsky or, or Rafe or any of those, you know, Rafe Stefanini, one of the things that I think they're sometimes not acknowledged for is, now this is not them being editors in the studio, but editors in the sense that because we have access to all these archival recordings, you can listen to a bunch of versions of yes. the tune, and then you can kind of create your own mashup, as it were. Um, and Shaking Down the Acorns is one of those things where there's you know beautiful versions. A lot of them come from the Hammonds family. Um, and so Eden Hammonds is the source mainly for the version that I play. But uh, Burl Hammonds also played a version, and um, the different versions of this tune kind of skim away and do slightly different things in the B part. And then I kind of thought, 
that I had stitched together a really interesting double version with this B part. I was very proud of it. And then I kind of sat down and played with Bruce. And he did exactly the same thing. I said, well, maybe I didn't think it up. <laughs> then I went back and listened. And, it turns out, and Hammonds did the same thing. So I think even the older traditional players, yeah. especially if they traveled around, uh, would compile different versions. And yeah. again, it's that question and answer thing. So... Um, uh, so I thought maybe uh, maybe we'd play this one, and um, I know I just subjected you to the various B parts, but you're a quick study, so uh, <laughs> you want to take a minute and get into yeah, A? Yeah. Here we go. All right, so here's shaking down the acorns. It's got a lot of drama, doesn't it? Oh man, that's a good mashup. Whether it was you or Eden, Eden or Bruce or whoever, yeah. Oh man, that's... and there's actually another B part from another version, and I thought about trying to mash it up, and I was like, "Don't let me confuse myself because I haven't played it in a while." However, um, since you'd asked me a little bit about kind of tune writing and how that fits in for playing traditional, this is a good example because this is one of the tunes that I did do a little adaptation of. And uh, we were talking earlier, so one of the band members in my old band, The Cliffhangers, uh, is a guitar player and fiddler, Rusty Nighthammer, down from your way. I know him well. Yeah. And I actually wanted to send this out to him because I know he's been 
battling some real kind of health challenges, and we're all rooting for him and uh, hoping that he is pulling through and in good spirits. But Rusty is, uh, he's one of the kind of my dearest friends uh, in the old-time music world. We used to see each other at Clifftop. I have a long history of writing tunes kind of... um, I wrote a tune for his wife, uh, Nancy uh, Nighthammer, when she arrived in Philly. She started working for the Scott Paper Company. And um, this is like way back in the 80s. And I wrote a tune for her called Scotty, which was sort of designed to have like this little musical sneeze in it. And I must have played it at Brandywine, you know, late some night. And I didn't think anyone knew it. And when I first ran into Dirk Powell, uh, I met him when he was still kind of a young guy, and yeah. he said, uh, "He said, oh, let's let's play that tune, Scotty." <laughs> now I didn't think anyone else knew the tune, Scotty. Yeah. So I said, uh, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not sure which one you mean." He goes, yeah. "Well, you wrote it," and I said, "Well, where did you learn it?" And he'd gotten some tape of a tape of a tape, yeah. so we played it, and that was one of the tunes I put on. Uh, my first album, Race the River Jordan, and another tune on that same album was called Nighthammer Honeymoon. And that was written for Rusty and Nancy's yeah. uh, wedding. And uh, there's a secret tune called Azalea that I wrote driving away from their wedding because the azaleas were all in bloom, which someday I will unearth and kind of play again. But then over the years, Rusty's probably learned more of my tunes yeah. than anybody, other, other fiddler at least, um, and um, when I just recently went back to Clifftop after being gone a long time, I sort of wandered into the, the gravel court, you know, campground, and he was sitting around playing with some friends, and I was like, I wandered up and said, oh, that's cool, what's that to? And then Rusty looked at me and said, well, you should know, you wrote it. <laughs> but you see, about, at that point, Rusty had sort of what we like to say, rustificated it. Yes, yes. And then it got his, so this is a tune that I know he loves and plays for dances, and it's my version of Shaking Down the Acorns, and it's called Aching Down the Shakehorns. <laughs> and what I kind of tried to do was just turn the original inside out. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll play it for you. And uh, we, uh, just so your listeners know, this is one where we decided in advance, I wouldn't let you hear it, so you'd have to kind of react to it in the moment. So uh, what I'd say is, like, listen to it, and then jump in if you feel like it. And um, it's got some weird chords in weird places, but I don't care if you play them or something else. All right. So let's just hear what happens to it. But I think it'll be a nice illustration of my trying to take the beautiful logic in the original and sort of kind of take the form and and put new wine in the old bottles. Well, I'm excited to hear it for the first time. Yes. And uh, this is going to be the last tune of the episode. So I want to say thank you so much, Mark Simos, for being on Get Up in the Cool. And uh, it's been a delight to, to play music with you and then to... I lo- the only thing I love is philosophizing much of- was also philosophizing. really fun. Yeah, yes. the only thing I love just as much as playing music is talking about playing music. <laughs> yeah. And that's uh, why I do this show. And I, I love that we're I- we're just on the same page about yeah, a lot well, of this stuff is really cool. You know, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a prof, so yeah, I, yeah. I pontificate at the yeah. drop of a hat. <laughs> I love so. it. I love it. Um, You're an no, eloquent I- fiddler, an eloquent talker about fiddling well thank you very much a not very eloquent way of putting that it's good this has gotten me into playing i'm about to go off to joe val and and uh and give a little couple of little songwriting things about um learning songwriting from masterpiece tunes was kind of this is an example of what i like to call stealing fire taking a tune you love studying what's going on and then doing some kind of creative response of your own to it and i'm going to do something else on uh um, simple yet fresh chord progressions. Yes. It's all about like simplicity and chords and making them kind of cool. And then, uh, you know, I don't get a chance to go out and tour really, but I'm going to do a little bit of teaching this summer, which yeah. will be really fun. I'm going to get a chance to teach at Miles of Music Camp uh, up in New Hampshire, which is a wonderful camp that really brings together kind of the songwriting and the roots music community. Yeah. It's really kind awesome. of And I've been... Uh, hoping to be part of that for a long time. I know uh, a lot of the founders, but for a long time I thought, oh, I'm just the old fuddy-duddy Berkeley <laughs> professor, but 
I guess this summer they decided I was cool enough yeah. uh, to hang out with the, 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 the young, brilliant kids. Still got it, Mark. Still got it, yeah. I got a little street cred. Or what is it? I still got game, right? Yeah. So, then I'm going to get a chance to go back to uh, one of my favorite camps on the West Coast, California Coast Music Camp. I'm going to do that in July. And we we'll be teaching at the songwriting, uh, week-long songwriting workshop at Berkeley. And uh, so I'm getting a little bit out there, uh, but love to just spread a couple of tunes. And this is a tune I'd love to have people spread yeah. up. So it just up. for your fiddlers out there, it's in, uh, like uh, Shaking Down the Acorns, it's just with the G up to A. So it's not okay. full cross A. Sometimes it's called high bass tuning, I think. So. Let, let me check my tuning Okay, I'm still good. So if this is going to be like shaking down the acorns, I'm probably going to do it at a sawmill too, because that's how I yeah, like. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. <laughs> yeah, definitely the same tuning. So. Cool. Cool. Oh, I gotta tell you one last little funny <laughs> yeah, story please. about this thing. So, I did perform this at Berkeley, and I had some great uh, kind of accompanists, Joe Walsh. A great musician, and at the time, Courtney Hartman, who's now a member of the band um, Dylan May, mm. uh, was a believe it or not, my songwriting student, a guitar player at Berkeley. <laughs> so I wrote out chords for this tune, and uh, it struck me that this tune actually sounds really good if the two guitar players play different chords at the same time. Interesting. Now, in Berkeley terms, when you do that, that's called a polychord. Yeah. It's not just a chord with a different bass note under it. It's like two, like D and A at the same time. Yeah. It happens in old-time music, usually by mistake. Yeah. You know, it's like they're not, they didn't have chord charts. But I would listen to some of those old, and I was like, boy, that's cool where that happened. That yeah. accident sounded really cool. So I did it on purpose. Yeah. And uh, I was talking to someone later, and I was sort of like, well, you know, like you could take a tune like Pretty Polly, you know, the sort of modal, you could do that with it. Yeah. You might say when that happens in old time music, these are pretty poly chords. Yeah. So that's my terrible pun. So pretty, pretty poly chords. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But we'll do it uh, just banjo and fiddle. And yeah. uh, here, here it is, aching down the shake horns. I'm sending this out to my good buddy, Rusty Nighthammer.
If you want to get Mark's music, check out his CD Baby pages for his first album of original old-time fiddle tunes, Race the River Jordan, also available for digital download. His album Crazy Faith is temporarily out of stock, but his Clifftop trilogy, Cliffhangers on the Edge and Clifftop Notes Volume 1 and Clifftop Notes Volume 2 are available via the Five String Productions website. Mark's book, Songwriting Strategies, A 360 Approach, is available on Amazon, and he has a new chapter called The Performing Songwriter's Dilemma in the Singer-Songwriter Handbook, edited by Justin and Catherine Williams, just published with Bloomsbury Press. Mark will be teaching this summer at Miles of Music Camp at Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire, June 10th through the 16th. Uh, the lottery's currently full, but you can get on the waiting list. That's milesofmusiccamp.com. He's also teaching at Berkeley's Summer Songwriting Workshop June 26th through the 30th and at California Coast Music Camp July 9th through the 15th. Um, Links for all those CDs and camps are on the Get Up in the Cool blog at CameronDeWitt.com, the Facebook page, which you should like and follow, uh, and in the show notes on your podcatching app. If you just sort of tap around long enough, you'll find some links. If you're glad Get Up in the Cool exists and want it to continue, go to CameronDeWitt.com and click the Patreon button. There you'll find different amounts you can contribute to the show on a regular basis and different rewards for doing so. Uh, David Whiting, who I just met at Black Creek Fiddler's Reunion, just signed up for my newest reward, the Banjo Hangout, uh, which I'm really excited about. It's basically a monthly online banjo workshop. This is for anyone who doesn't need weekly one-on-one banjo lessons, but could use a few tips here and there, especially if you want to catch more melody notes, play with more syncopation, and play parallel harmonies to the fiddle. And of course, you'll also get the lower reward tiers, including weekly MP3 downloads of the tunes played on each episode, uh, which is basically an investment in what could someday be the largest resource for the music of our generation's players. No big deal. Uh, And access to the bonus track blog. This week's bonus track is a really cool tune called Run All Night that Mark Simos wrote for Steve Arkin's birthday, and he tells a really charming story about it, which I also recorded. So go to CameronDoIt.com and click the Patreon button. Maybe join David Whiting and I online sometime for a banjo hangout. Thanks, David. It really means a lot, and I'm looking forward to all our banjo talk in the future. That's enough for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week for more Get Up in the Cool 